Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. I spent a lot of time in the car when I was young. We used to visit our Cayley round South Armagh and Tyrone, away from the house in the afternoon to Ochnacloy, Monaghan, Berra, Ballygolly, or to Armagh, Tully, Sarn and Cayley. Long days that stretched into evenings coming home late through checkpoints. And we always brought stuff. It might only have been a tin of biscuits or maybe a wee bottle of something. My father worked in the wine and spirit business and I grew up hearing about these exotic things like borzoi vodka and liebfrommelsch and cream of the bee. And he was a great believer in the power of bringing a bottle of wine because it seemed exotic at the time, looked more expensive than it probably was. But equally, it could just be a wee bunch of flowers. My great-aunt Nellie used to give out about us coming with stuff that she had all she needed in her small farmhouse in Roscavi in County Tyrone. Oh, here they come again, she'd say, loading down like a tame bee. Isn't that brilliant? Loading down like a tame bee. But I still have that sense of not landing to a house with your two arms the one length. On one of the most memorable days of my life, I got an opportunity to meet the legendary singer Pete Seeger at his house in upstate New York. He gave me the most precise directions over the phone. The turn for his house was seven-eighths of a mile past the traffic lights. And I was so excited... I knew this was one day in my life that I'd never live again, so I stopped to buy a chocolate cake to bring with me. Turned off the highway, up and up into the woods, followed the coloured ribbons on the trees, as Pete had told me, and as I pulled into the yard of the house, which sat high up above the Hudson River, there he was, out chopping wood for the winter. And as it turns out, Pete was a Devil for chocolate cake, which he apparently wasn't supposed to be eating for health reasons, but because I'd come a long way and brought it, that was okay. So we divvied up the dark, glossy cake and got stuck in immediately. And we chatted, me and Pete and a cake. I once stayed in a house in the south of Germany when I was 17 and the banatee was so proud to tell that she had bought das irische Butter She'd driven a 40-mile round trip just to get salted Irish butter for me. Small acts of hospitality, just looking after you. She would do the same herself. Of course, when you're a child, what you get is much more important than what you bring. In Aunt Nellie's, it was without fail a glass of Lucasade. It didn't matter if you were 5 or 55, the priest or the postman, everybody got offered a glass of Lucasade from that bottle with the orange plastic wrapped round it that you covered your headlights with in the fog. And after Lucasade, a cup of strong brown tea you could stand on. If you called around this time of year, Nellie would have made potato pudding, which I've never had anywhere else, a smooth, warm, thick, slightly orangey-pink dish in a bowl that she said was just made with potatoes and flour. 
At my granny's house in Katy, you got soft white bread and a fresh pot of red jam, mostly strawberry, sometimes damson. And at my other granny's place in Port Stewart, the menu du jour was vegetable soup with barley and that gorgeous soft stringy meat that I now know was a shin of beef. But I recently went to visit a couple in their 90s up in the Sperrins in South Derry. I'd never met them before, but he collected vintage farm machinery from all over the world, like a grey tractor from America and this bright green turnip masher from a fair in Dorset. It was one of those scorching hot days and I arrived to a table laid in the yard of their farmhouse, fresh wheaten bread, scones and sandwiches, like an old style guest tea. We ate, mooched around, talked a bit and then walked down to the shallow banks of the Moyola River to a magical place that tourists will never see. And then before I went home, the woman of the house said, wait there, and she went off to find something. And I said, don't be giving me anything. But she went rooting in a drawer and she emerged with a pear which she wrapped in a single sheet of kitchen roll. And she handed it to me with great care, saying, that's to take the thirst off you on the way home. A mile down the road, as the sun beat down, I reached for the pear. And as I ate it, I thought I had rarely felt so cared for and so looked after. my hand I shake their hand to everyone in all the world I shake my hand like this all all together the whole wide world around I may not know their lingo but I can say by jingo no matter where you live a robin flits from the hedgerow across our path Clara, our young Swedish visitor, takes her phone from her pocket and snaps as the bird lifts into the air and flies away. She shows us the photo, a flurry of -of out-of-focus wings. It's for my father, she says. He started watching birds in the garden during lockdown. We don't get robins coming so close, so intimate in Uppsala. Intimate is the word she uses to describe the traditional music session in the Crane pub in Galway, the night before she joined us in Inishboffin. She looks for another word to define the even closer house gathering we bring her to in the cottage beside Murray's bar. The best we can come up with is cosy. Later, she will write the word in her journal. Sitting around the turf fire at the house session, taking turns to sing, recite or play a tune. She is tickled when Rita takes herself to the toilet to practice her Shan-No steps before emerging and lamenting her inappropriate shoes, begins to hop, twist and shuffle to whistle tunes in the small space in front of the fire, humming away to herself. When it comes to Clara's turn, no one expects this young Swedish woman to contribute. There are calls for Abba, which she ignores. She tells of the martyred Saint Lucia, the bearer of light in the dark Swedish winters, 
and Lucia's day on December 13th. She describes the procession, the girl chosen to take the part of Lucia leading, wearing lighted candles on her head, the girls who follow, singing traditional songs, wearing long white robes and garlands of flowers in their hair. Clara's voice is pure and clear, and there's a hush in the room as the strains of the Swedish folk song lilt in the air. We walk home in the darkness of the unlit lanes, listening to the rasping of the corn crake, which follows our progress past day's pub, up the hill and on to the east end. My father would love it here, she says, as we explain the efforts of the islanders to preserve the natural breeding grounds of the near-extinct corncrake. Walking along the beach next morning, we point out the Galway Mountains, the Twelve Bens and Mam Turks suddenly emerging from cloud, deep purple on the horizon, the turquoise of the sea. She is amazed by the things we take for granted. Animals roaming free on the hills and grazing the fields. Cows with their eternal sideways munching and their serious long-lashed eyes. Sheep and lambs that sidle up close to curiously examine her before a slight movement sends them leaping away over the ditch. Chickens that potter around the farm gates. Fresh, she writes in her journal, when the swimmers describe the water temperature. Does that mean really cold, she asks. It works for weather too, we tell her. She tries it out with a twinkle in her eye. A fresh day, she says, as we climb the bog road, wind whipping hair into our eyes, clouds racing, shadows mottling the bog pools, the bog cotton flittering in the breeze. And there's a soft day too, we explain when the rain is a slight drizzle and the wind just a whisper. She settles her black baseball cap over her short blonde hair. Her smile is broad and open, her clothes practical, her travel bag light. She is unadorned apart from five silver earrings, one a recent addition which she twirls as she walks. She is chatty, respectful, engaged but not intrusive, and you wonder about the parents that nurtured her interest in the world during her young life. Maybe you wonder more about the father who features so much in her chatter. The father who spent a wild year sharing a cold, damp house in Galway while in college, who told her that he was grateful for his Swedish army-issue sleeping bag when the winter storms blew in off the Atlantic through the leaky windows. As she steps onto the boat to leave for the mainland, she tells us she will remember that Inishbofinia is the island of the white cow. And as the ferry rounds the pier, she waves with a twist of her erect hand, and we find that we have been strangely moved by the short visit of this 20-year-old Swedish woman, whose journey will now take her back to Galway to stay with her father's friend from a time before she was born then to Amsterdam and beyond. We wonder what the other hostel dwellers, with their various mother tongues and common English, will make of her new vocabulary. Will they understand, as she spreads her arms wide, that she loved the whole shebang of her time in the west of Ireland, all the soft, fresh days of it?
I have just one literary manuscript in my possession. It's not a well-known work, but it means a lot to me. It was sent to me in 1982 by my friend from school and college, Sean Dunn, as a wedding gift. Sean was a fine poet who sadly died young in 1994 before he had fully developed his powers as a writer. A wedding letter to New Delhi imagines scenes from our marriage ceremony in that exotic Indian setting. While harking back to the tradition of Elizabethan wedding poems, it insists that there is more wonder in everyday things than in the pined for chorus-haunted wood the conjured Orpheus with impossible loot. I naturally liked his reference to my measured pace, Oriental in its calm, although I'm not sure I've always managed to live up to Sean's description. Those qualities might more accurately be ascribed to my wife, Greta. For both of us, this manuscript kindles fond memories of its author and of the wedding it was written to celebrate four decades ago. If I take pride in possessing this modest literary artefact, what must it be like to own the manuscripts of the two most famous works of literary modernism. There is one man who had that experience a hundred years ago. He could inspect that page in Joyce's hand from which stately, plump Buck Mulligan leapt into our consciousness as he emerged from the stairhead at Sandy Coast Martello Tower at the beginning of Ulysses. Before the year had come to a close, that same Irish-American could grip the pages of the wasteland on which T.S. Eliot assured us that April is the cruelest month breathing lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory with desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. John Quinn was born in Ohio in 1870, the son of two Irish immigrants, and rose to prominence as a leading New York lawyer. He kept close tabs on his ancestral homeland, which he first visited in 1902. Quinn befriended many prominent figures from early 20th century Ireland and helped organise W.B. Yeats's first tour of America in 1903. Later, he supported the poet's father, John Butler Yeats, during his protracted stay in New York. The arrangement was that W.B. would send manuscripts to Quinn, who would then dole out funds to Yeats Sr., which allowed him to remain in America until his death in February 1922, a day after the publication of Ulysses. Quinn who had a topsy-turvy relationship with James Joyce, first came into contact with him in 1916 when, at the behest of Ezra Pound, he sent Joyce a gift of £10. Quinn was prudishly appalled by parts of Ulysses, but remained keen to support Joyce and to arrange the publication of his novel. A man with a suite of unpleasant prejudices, Quinn was no soft-touch philanthropist. As an avid collector who assembled an extraordinary array of modern art, he was eager to acquire literary manuscripts in return for his financial largesse. In 1921, Quinn unsuccessfully defended the editors of the Little Review, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, when they were indicted on charges of indecency for publishing excerpts from Joyce's novel. The outcome of this case, taken by the New York Society for the Prevention of Vice, meant that an American edition did not appear until 1934. Inevitably, Quinn bought the manuscript of Ulysses, for which he paid Joyce $1,200. Quinn's association with Joyce is understandable in light of his Irish heritage, but his friendship with T.S. Eliot is more surprising, for Eliot grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, but with an eminent New England family background. He had little in common with Quinn, and the two never actually met. 
Quinlow had a keen eye for artistic talent and took vicarious satisfaction from the achievements of those he championed. Quinn provided Elliot with indefatigable support as he, like Joyce, struggled to get his great work into print. Elliot felt quite overwhelmed by Quinn's endless kindness. In gratitude, he gifted Quinn the manuscript of The Wasteland when it was published in December 1922, bookending an extraordinary year for modern literature. I like to think of those two manuscripts nesting together in a cabinet at Quinn's home overlooking New York Central Park. In 1924, an ailing Quinn decided to dispose of his manuscript collection, including Ulysses. He sold Joyce's manuscript at auction to a collector from Philadelphia, Dr. Rosenbach, for just under $2,000. Joyce was appalled that his masterpiece had attracted such a meagre price and sought to buy it back, but was rebuffed. The Ulysses manuscript now rests in Philadelphia's Rosenbach Museum, where it is highly prized, and especially on Bloomsday, when it is the subject of a 10-hour public reading on the adjoining street. Sean Dunn's unheralded manuscript of A Wedding Letter to New Delhi, which is the same age as our marriage, remains a cherished possession of ours. It will never leave its home in our home, and Greta and I will continue to derive a quiet pleasure from its presence, reminding us, as it does, of happy bygone days. In the car park, doors were banging shut, couples moving towards the hotel, talking, laughing. Women were shivering into their flimsy wraps. Men were thumping shoulders, working up thirsts. The buzz in anticipation of the dinner dance. It was as Carl and I walked across the lawn shaded by Monterey Pines that I saw my father. He was hobbling along, coming towards us, silhouetted by the brightly lit windows of the hotel behind him. My heart gave a jump. He was on the walking stick, support for the hip that was to be replaced in Kappa Hospital whenever he'd get the appointment, which, as it turned out, he never did. He'd lit a cigarette. I nudged Carol. Look, why is he here? He wasn't paying attention to those passing along, caught up in his own concerns. But he stopped when I said hello. And then I said it again, at a loss for what to say. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. I've just finished work, he smiled. He looked tired. The knot of his tie was loose and the collar of his trench coat was caught halfway in and halfway out. What are you doing here? he said. But of course, you're going to the dinner dance. Carol, you look lovely. What are you doing here? I said. I'm working here. You work here? Yes. For the past few weeks, it helps top up the old pension. I rang one day and told them about my experience in the catering business. They told me to come in. 
You have experience, surely, I said. He stood and hummed an air. He always hummed when words weren't coming. What work do you do here? I've been arranging tables and chairs for the dinner dance and I've been told I can leave now. I had an image of him laying aside his walking stick, shoving heavy tables, huffing about with stacks of tubular chairs, standing back to see the chairs were evenly spaced. He'd had Big Tom, Joe Dolan, in the days when he ran his own hotel. He'd got the raffle tickets, the cloakroom tickets, the steak and chips for Big Tom or Joe before their gigs. The dinners for the cattlemen on mart days, for the horsemen and gamblers on hunt and race days. He'd arranged the furniture for furniture sales, the catwalks for fashion shows, his spectacular successes, his spectacular failures. He'd done it all. I can give you a lift back, I said. No, you'll be late for the dance. There's a bus due at the top of the road. Leaves me outside the flat. He looked at me for what seemed a long time. The belt of the trench coat was tight around his light frame. He stubbed the cigarette out in the lawn. Love Me Tender was drifting out the silvery front doors. The band warming up. Latecomers sprinting from cars. The evening would soon begin. Then... Perched on a Monterey pine above, a bird started up its song. Halting, beginning again, he looked up. Blackbird, he said. Blackbird at night is a beautiful sound. I'll head off so, he made to put the bad leg forward. Have a lovely evening. How are the children, Carol? he asked. He looked at his watch. I'd say they're asleep, as snug as two bugs in a rug by now. He touched his coat pocket. I have some meat left over from the hotel kitchen. A quick snack, then time for a drink in Walters to meet my friend. The pub. I'd been with him there a few times. He'd introduced me to his friend. A large, floppily dressed man who he sometimes invited back to his tiny bedsit where they sat on the bed and ate fish and chips and talked on through the night. I think my heart cracked a little as we stood there. I thought the playing with grandchildren, the smahan of Ishgabaha, as he called it, the night song of a blackbird. For a man of big yesterdays and probably a few tomorrows sweeping dance floors, these were now the pleasures. Good night, Daddy, I said, as he soldiered off. Call round to see the children soon. They love it when you come. And why wouldn't they? On those Sundays he arrived to dinner with the two large bars of arrow for them. And happily he ate his chicken and watched them, their appetites spoiled. And he saying, They'll only be young once. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. 
take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to arise. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. A friend called me a while ago. Will you meet me in a graveyard at Rathcool? I paused and then he added, I need your help. I'm trying to find a war poet. But which war poet was he seeking in Rathcool of all places? Curiosity took me there and at the front gate, my historian friend Mervyn Ennis greeted me with a challenge. Name some of the World War I poets. No problem. Siegfried Sassoon, Robert Graves, Rupert Brooke, Wilfred Owen. Good, he said. Now name a woman war poet. And you know what? I was stumped. Did you ever hear of Winifred Mabel Letts? I shook my head foggily. Did you ever hear the poem A Soft Day? Of course I did. My mother used that very expression whenever she greeted people on the street on what she called a soft day, always adding, thank God. I learned the poem in primary school and it left a warm impression on me. I loved it from the very first time I heard it for its rhythm and imagery and even the sounds captured within it. It was indeed a soft day, thank God, on the day Mervyn and I went searching in Rathcool for the grave of Winifred Mabel Letts. But who was she? Winifred came into the world on the 10th of February 1882 in Manchester. Her father was an English clergyman and her mother Irish. Winifred spent childhood holidays with her mother's people at Knockmaroon on the chapelizzard side of Phoenix Park. She loved Ireland so much that she convinced her parents to send her to Alexandra College, Dublin, to further her education. When her father died, both she and her mother returned to Ireland in 1904 to live in a big house named Dalrida, close to Black Rock. Winifred was very busy at home in Dalrida, writing a couple of novels that were published in 1907 and a collection of poetry called Songs from Leinster. She wrote two plays that were accepted by the Abbey Theatre. Her poetry made such an impression on the Irish composer Sir Charles Villiers Stanford that he set six of them to music. Thirteen more poems were set to music and sung by the famous Irish baritone Harry Plunkett Green. Soon other composers were vying with each other to write music to her poetry. Winifred Mabel Letts published nine novels, a collection of poetry and several stories for children. And she was at the height of her career when the First World War broke out. By June 1915, war casualty numbers were rising and the Linden Auxiliary Hospital up the road from her Dublin home was taking in wounded for rehabilitation. Now in her thirties, she and her mother volunteered with the Red Cross to do whatever they could do to help. 
her harrowing experiences there led her to compose her war poems. The Deserter is one of her poems frequently quoted. There was a man, don't mind his name, whom fear had dogged by night and day, and so he turned and ran away. They shot him when the dawn was grey, blindfolded when the dawn was grey. Her time at Linden Auxiliary Hospital prompted her to train as a nurse specialising in physiotherapy. That type of nursing led her to the Military Orthopaedic Hospital in Black Rock, tending to the recovery of the wounded. And somewhere, somehow, in between all of this, she produced two more collections of poetry, those poems predated the protest poetry of Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen and Robert Graves. Yet she rarely gets any measure of their kind of recognition. Still writing after the war in 1926, she married widower William Henry Foster Vershoyle of Tassagert, County Dublin. He and his first wife had suffered the loss of two sons in the war and she had died heartbroken in 1924. By all accounts, Vers and Wynne, as they were referred to, had a happy life together. After he died, Winifred moved to Killiney and finally rested in Tivoli nursing home Dunleary. She remained there until her passing in her 90th year. She was buried in Rathcool. On that soft day, thank God, in Rathcool, Mervyn and I decided that her grave deserved to be recognised. He did everything in his power to get it done. And on the 50th anniversary of her death, in June this year, President Higgins unveiled the inscription on her gravestone. The Frankfurt Book Fair is the oldest and to this day the world's largest trade fair for books. The five-day annual event in October has a history that goes back all the way to the 15th century when printing was developed. For the past two years, COVID prohibited the usual proceedings, but this autumn sees publishers and writers, presenters and the media back at the multitude of events. Since 1988, Every year, a country is chosen as special guest of honor. This year, Spain is the chosen country, but a lot of attention will also be given to writers from Ukraine, writers like Shahe Shadan and Katya Petroskaya. In 1996, Ireland was the guest of honor. Incidentally, just a year after Seamus Heaney had been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. Naturally, he was one of the many writers invited to Frankfurt. 
When I now look at the program of 1996, it strikes me that male writers outnumbered female writers by far. Wouldn't it be different nowadays? Representatives of the chosen nation get special attention from German media around the time of the book fair. When Ireland was guest of honour, all papers had articles on Irish writers and documentaries were shown on TV. As a journalist, I was commissioned by the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung to write a piece on Brendan Kennelly, which I really loved to do, as it would give me a chance to meet the poet whom I admired for his work and his wonderful, engaging personality. Staying in Sligo at the time, a meeting in Dublin was quickly arranged. The afternoon with Brenton Connelly in the garden of Trinity College is unforgettable. We sat on a bench, birds picking around our feet, lovingly greeted by the poet, sun shining, words flowing, topics ranging from the drag and dread of alcoholism, the sorrow of a broken marriage, the joys and rewards of teaching, up to the healing potential of poetry. In his soft, melodious voice, he talked about his admiration for women, his own shortcomings and failures, his belief in the young, if only you encourage them. And accompanied by his infectious laughter, he would say things like, teaching and writing were his ways to connect so that he wouldn't die a lunatic. Never had I met a celebrated professor so unassuming and self-doubting. What was unusual, too, is that he asked me, his interviewer, about myself, where I came from, what had brought me to Ireland. I told him about my hometown on the Rhine, where my ailing mother lived, who would soon have to move to a place where she would be looked after. He asked her name and where exactly she lived and pronounced her first name, Louise, so cutely the French way, Louise. And then this magic afternoon came to an end and I had to rush to Connolly Station to get the last train to Sligo. And he ran with me across the Liffey down Talbot Street while right and left people constantly addressed him. Hello, Brendan. How is it going, Brendan? And then a quick goodbye at the station and we assured each other it wouldn't be long till we'd meet again in Frankfurt. This was not to be. I would make it to Frankfurt, but just for a day as my mother's move to a nursing home coincided with the time of the book fair and I had to be with her. But a day I would manage, if only to see Brendan Connelly again. To my unspeakable disappointment, I was told he wasn't there and wouldn't come because of urgent heart surgery in Dublin. I couldn't believe it. Had he not run with me all the way from Trinity to Connolly Station just a while ago and no trace of impediment of any kind? Sadly, I made my way to my hometown on the Rhine and found my mother very composed and reconciled to the fact of having to move. Somewhat puzzled, she told me that she had been sent very nice sweets from Ireland. Did I know anything about it? No, I didn't. But when I saw the box of butler's chocolates at her bedside, 
it dawned on me who had sent them, and it brought tears to my eyes. On this morning's programme, we heard Two Arms, the One Length by John Toll, Soft, Fresh Days by Helen Lehert, Ulysses, The Wasteland, and A Wedding Letter to New Delhi was by Daniel Mulhall, Blackbird Singing in the Dead of Night by Leo Cullen, A Soft Day Poet by May Leonard, and Missing Brendan Kennelly by Gudrun Bach Mullen. The music today was To Everyone in All the World by Pete Seeger, Sancta Lucia, sung by the Swedish Naka Girls Choir. Oft in the Stilly Night, played by Ken Austin. Blackbird, by the Beatles. And A Soft Day, Thank God, by Winifred Mabel Letts, with music by Charles Villiers Stanford, sung by Bernadette Grevy, and accompanied on piano by Hugh Tinney. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. Dan Mulhall's latest book is Ulysses, a reader's odyssey, published by New Island Books. And there's plenty more new writing coming up this evening on RTE Radio 1. The poetry programme with Olivia O'Leary is back for a new season at 7 and Olivia is talking to Frank McGuinness. And that's followed by 7.30 at 7.30 by a short story of Donal Ryan's, the first in a new series of spoken stories. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.